1: Hey, everybody, before we start the show, I just want to let you know in the segment with RJ Scaringe and Marquez Brownlee, you may hear me talk about some things uh, that weren't in the clips that I'm going to share with you. And the reason for that is I didn't want to take too much of Marquez's interview. And I'd really like you to go and listen to it because I think it has a lot of relevance to what we talk about here. All right, let's go ahead and jump into the show. Hello, everyone, and welcome to Kilowatt. My name is Bodie, and I am your host. And in this episode, it's an all Rivian episode. We are going to hear from RJ Scaringe, Rivian's CEO, and Rivian's CFO, Claire McDonough. RJ did an interview with Marquez Brownlee, and Claire McDonough uh, talked at a Bank of America event. I'm pretty sure that's what it was. It was some hoity-toity financial event. But anyway, we got some good information from both of these uh, sources. Now, I don't mind stealing as much as I possibly can from Bank of America. I do have a problem taking a lot of content from Marquez Brownlee. So I only took what I thought would pique your interest and give you some information, but would also uh, lead you to his website. And I'll put a link in the show notes or his YouTube channel, because even though he has a way bigger following than me. I don't want to ride his coattails too hard. All right, we're going to start with RJ Scaringe and Marquez Brownlee. I don't know if I've said this, but RJ looks a lot like Steve O of Jackass. I mean, he doesn't talk like him, but he looks a lot like him. Like they could be brothers. But that's not why we're here today we're here to hear about Rivian in our first clip we're going to hear about two softwares so let's go ahead and jump into that
2: and one of the challenges in automotive historically is you you like the teams and a lot of the technologies either siloed or very often outsourced so electronics software infotainment these are not typically things that that car manufacturers uh, do themselves mm-hmm. so for us vertically integrating our electronic stack, so it's all the computers in the car the software stack that sits on top of them allowed us to integrate features in a way that you, you typically don't see
3: honestly i think this is one of the differentiating features of this ev hmm. which is this software is really good hmm. uh and i think that's also kind of curious because a lot of traditional car companies yeah. are I've described them as hardware companies first, really good at manufacturing, and then they happen to also have to do software to yeah. make it all work. Where some of the really good ones, Rivian, Tesla, Lucid, you might throw in there, really good software companies that are also making a car that works well around yeah. it. Do you think of that as an advantage for Rivian? Just yeah, I mean, it's a
2: huge focus for us. And when we talk about software, there's the things we see, you know, that manifest in the UI here, but the everything that exist under the surface. So the way the chassis controls work, powertrain controls, battery management, mm-hmm. all of that being developed in house allows us to quickly iterate and improve yeah. the product and add new features, add more range. Uh, the, our This year's product is more range than last year's product, but it's right. I largely got software, through software, update. software updates. Yeah. Yep. Which is really fun. Um, but you, but you have to control the the entirety of the software stack to really fully leverage right. all the capabilities.
1: A few things I want to mention here or highlight, a lot of thought went into the R1 line. Uh, one of the things that he talked about was mixed disciplines all working together in the same room. Tesla talked a lot about this in that uh, they don't have Tesla and Rivian. They don't have siloed teams that are working without communicating or uh, how, how should I say this? Uh communication isn't the best when you have teams working in different rooms. So you might have engineers from different vi- disciplines all sitting in the same room so that they can recognize or solve issues early on versus later in the process, which is, you know, adds more complexity and and price to the, the vehicle. They talked a lot about the software and you can't, Obviously, see it on this podcast, but as they're talking about the software, they're bouncing through the infotainment screens. The software is buttery smooth, it looks really cool. They did a great job with that. Um, let's see here. I, I cut this out, but Rivian actually initially planned on building a sports car, so that's that's interesting. Uh, and then they pivoted towards the adventure vehicles, so that's pretty cool. And uh, no Apple CarPlay or Google, um. Play, whatever the Google's thing is, Android Auto. There you go. That's not going to be a a thing in a Rivian because RJ said that they want to control the experience. I think they could do both, but I get it. Like if we talked a few weeks ago about Chevy or GM stopping Apple CarPlay, and I think that's that's a mistake only because I think it's going to be a bad user experience by stopping that if there's a company like Tesla, Rivian, Lucid and they're staying up to date on their software and they're not letting that flag like that's a priority for those companies then i i, I don't mind that there's not Apple CarPlay or Android Auto but if if your company like GM, Ford, Dodge uh you know, Ram, Stellantis, all, all those companies. If you're a company that has proven in the past that you're not interested in keeping your your stuff up to date, or you want to nickel and dime everybody, Mercedes, because uh, you have that ability to charge for heating seats, then I'm not I'm not down with that. But mostly, I I want to have the 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 software updated on a regular basis, and I think a lot of you probably want that same thing. He talked a little bit about magic moments, and I think Rivian and Tesla deliver on this in spades. They constantly have features that just delight you. Uh, it may just be because they work really well, or they there's just some feature that you never would have thought would be in a car, and it just shows up. So that's that's a nice uh, that's a nice bonus for those customers. Next up, we're going to get a Rivian and Amazon update.
2: To do that on any vehicle is hard. To do that. In a vehicle, when you've got this supply chain crisis happening in the backdrop, it's really hard to do that when you've got the challenges of operating with COVID. It was, it was incredibly hard. Um, and to sort so of stack those four different vehicles over the course of the last year was, was, yeah. was, uh, tested our, our operational capabilities and it showed all the gaps that we had. And, and we learned so much in the last year. But as it stands today, the, the T and the S, the R1 platform is ramping. And the van program, uh, well, it's a completely different vehicle top hat. We do share some of the electronics, okay. Um, share some of the um, propulsion element elements of the propulsion platform, but um, but it's a much easier vehicle to build. Mm-hmm. It's it's you know there's like one seat and a jump seat, I, yeah uh, I it's like say, a big box with shelves in the back. So it's, yeah, it's it's a uh, it's a different kind of vehicle than this. When I mean, you look at this, this, is a lot of content. It's a complex vehicle to build, definitely. So the Amazon vans and the commercial vans we're ramping those as you say you're going to start seeing
3: a lot of them on the roads yeah it's it's kind of i feel like that's the most common rivian vehicle i see on the road right now maybe it's just because of being in new jersey being around the amazon facility there's more r1s on the road um there are a lot around here the the key is we deploy those in in clusters i see so there's probably a big cluster here and then they also have to have their own like charging setup and they Correct, get, yeah. they get like w- walked through the advantages of the vehicle and like what to do, well, what not to do. For,
2: for a driver, I mean, yeah. imagine, um, you're in a van all day long driving. This is, this yeah. is your office. Yep. So the comfort, the drivability, things like regen, these all become really key elements of, of your, of your, what it feels like to be at work during the day. Yeah. So we've spent a lot of time on driver comfort and with drivers in the feedback loop through the development process. And one of the things that we found was, um, most important was actually getting in and out of the vehicle. So you have to get in and out of the vehicle Not a lot, about 300 times a day. Jeez. Okay. So the van is asymmetric. So on the driver's side, there's a forward hinge door, right? Uh, which actually, on a on a route, you don't use that often. Yeah. And on what we would call the passenger side, there's a pocket door, so mm-hmm. a door that sort of slides into the body itself. And so the ease at which you can hop out of the driver's seat, grab a package, and then get out of the vehicle through this open pocket door. Mm-hmm. Makes just that whole process a lot easier. And so that coupled with, of course, the drivability of an EV and then a really heavy focus on thermal control. So the seats are cooled and heated. Nice. Um, and when I say cooled, not just vented, but actually, um, uh, you know, cooled refrigerated air oh, blowing up through the seat, huh. which on a hot day feels really nice, to hot, hot, sit down on a, on a I seat. And it's almost like when you, when you go into the kitchen, you open the refrigerator to cool off and it yeah. blows a burst of cool air. It's like your co- seat does that to you. So it's really, something that the drivers um have responded to positively and it's the sought after vehicle right within the you know within the distribution centers that's really interesting you yeah.
1: the biggest takeaway that i had of, of this topic was the thermal seats i want a thermal seat we mentioned that ford did a study versus uh heated surfaces versus hvac systems uh in your vehicle and which one was better and more efficient for an EV? And it turns out the heated surfaces are because those heated surfaces are are always warm, right? You open up your door, you get out all of the air from the HVAC system is all that warm air or cold air, depending on what you got, it just goes out the door with you, right? But on the heated surfaces or the cooled surfaces in this case, that stays more local and it's actually more energy efficient. Ford did that study and it sounds like Rivian has has done the same thing. I am really, I really, really want a thermal seat. As somebody who lives in Arizona, those cool seats, I, I need that really bad. I would encourage you to go listen to the entire interview. It's really good. Marquez has a couple of different uh, YouTube channels. This is Waveform All right, let's jump into our next section of the program, which is a Bank of America event. And they sat down with Ruvian CFO, Claire McDonough. Analyst John Murphy asks the question, it has to do with supply chain. It has to do with production. We're just going to let Claire run with it. So let's go ahead and jump into that. So
0: really first to kind of take off, um, you know, the, the start of production or the ramp of production, I should say, is, is sort of top of everybody's mind in understanding what's happening here. There's been some sort of downgrades of, of expectations. Um, a lot of that has to do with, uh, what's going on in the supply chain side, right? You can only make what you get, um, right? Or you can only put together what you, you actually get from the, the supply chain. So maybe you can just, um, you know, talk to us about, you know, how that, how that is progressing, how you're thinking about this year, um, you know, the 50,000 units this year, um, has you know, been rumored to be, um, too low, and there might be, you know, there might be some upside over time. Um, you know, maybe talk about sort of what your actual capacity could be if suddenly everything, you know, that you were, you were dealing with on the supply chain side actually got worked out and had a flood of parts, uh, and actually started running full throttle on production.
4: Sounds great. Well, first, maybe I'll start with, uh, Q1 production levels that we've seen at our, our plant in normal Illinois. And throughout the course of of Q1, we continued the build out and production of our R1 uh, product line, which houses our R1T, our truck and our SUV, the R1S. And we saw meaningful growth uh, in the production uh, quarter over quarter as we think about really the the rate of growth that we've experienced throughout the course of, of Q1. As we also experienced uh, in Q1, we took some downtime with our uh, EDV or our electric delivery van line as well, and we took that downtime to integrate uh, two new key technologies into the vehicle. Uh, the first is our LFP battery pack, and the second is our in-house enduro drive unit. And while production levels were, were low and expected to be low in that Q1 timeframe, I would say that the great uh, bright spot is uh, the fact that our our Enduro Thrive unit uh, launched on time and is ramping according to uh, schedule and, and plan. And back to the the second part of your question, as you think about what unlocks incremental volume for Rivian throughout the course of 2023, uh, one of the biggest unlocks for us is is related to the supply chain. So in our Q4 earnings call, we spoke uh, at length about Um, You know, power semiconductors being that gating factor from an overall uh, supply perspective. And one of the the key mitigation tools that we have at our disposal is the introduction and the ramp of the Enduro Drive unit this year, which unlocks a new secondary supply base uh, of our power semiconductors within the, the plant, And then also as we think about the fact that we're building today uh, quad motors on the R1 line, and now we'll be introducing uh, dual motor configurations, right? We need half of the power semiconductors per vehicle um, as you think about the introduction of the dual motors into the R1 line as as well. And so as as we talked about the 50,000 units of of guidance that we provided for 2023, uh, the gating factor that we talked about was supply. And so our ability to continue to, you know, ramp and execute against the growth of that Enduro Drive unit, uh, which today is feeding the EDV line, in the second half of this year we will move to more of a surplus position whereby uh, we will building excess Enduro Drive units that can also, you know, fulfill our R1 uh, volumes as well. And um, that's really where the upside opportunity relies from an overall, you know, ramp and production perspective.
1: So it sounds like production is improving for Rivian, and we've had many reports saying such. They did a shutdown for the delivery van, the Amazon van, so that they can install or transfer over to LFP batteries, which aren't as energy dense, but they're more affordable and they can take more of a beating than the nickel, uh, manganese, cobalt batteries can. And then they installed the Enduro Drive. The Enduro Drive was designed in-house. It combines like the drive unit, the inverter, and some other things all together. It delivers more than 600 horsepower. Not only does it deliver more power, it's, it's more affordable for Rivian to use because it's all designed in-house. And it's more efficient, which, as you can imagine, is pretty important. And then she talked a little bit about having power semiconductor supply chain issues, but it sounds like moving to the Enduro is going to help ease that pain a little bit. Next up, we're going to hear about uh, Rivian's factory in Georgia and the potential capacity for the R12 line. Like, how many can they build there?
0: When we think about the next leg of, of capacity um, that comes on in Georgia, I think it's 2026, what is, it, what is the, um, installed capacity in, in the first, in the first leg or even, you know, in, in total? Um, and are we looking at that being completely R2s? I think in the past there was a little bit of RT that was going to come into the Georgia plant, but I think that's been pushed out and we're looking at R2s at the moment. So what's the potential capacity there?
4: Just the total capacity will be 400,000 units in Georgia. I will build it out in a modular fashion. So with 200,000 units uh, coming online first in, in the 2026 time frame. And R2 is, is a platform the same way that the R1, um, you know, vehicle is a platform with an R1T and an R1S. So there, you could think about there certainly being, you know, different variants over time uh, that will, you know, sit on that R2 platform as well.
0: Got it. So the, the two other, two, the second 200,000 tranche, is there, have you guys given us a time frame on that or the first, the first of 2026,
1: the second, we haven't, we haven't gotten any. We
4: haven't years. given specifics on when the, that second 200,000 units come online.
1: Based on what Rivian is dealing with at the moment in terms of the R1T and the R1S and having the supply chain issues, the production issues, do you think it's reasonable that they could build 200,000 units in 2026? Um, It seems like a lot to me, but I'm curious to know what you think. I mean, it's a whole new platform with a whole new form factor sitting on that platform, whether that's a sedan or a small SUV. I don't think there'll be a truck, although I've heard some people say that there'll be a smaller truck. You can't get much smaller than the Rivian. It's a pretty small truck in terms of trucks. So yeah, that seems seems like 200,000 is a lot in 2026, maybe 2027, 2028, maybe something like that. But 2026 seems... uh um aspirational more than realistic our next question is not something that we really cover a lot here um, simply because i believe if i'm understanding the question correctly he's asking can you charge more money for the (laughs) r1t and uh, on my show i'm always asking can't we charge less money so uh, these are financial people I, I, they, they want to make more money so that makes sense. so let's go ahead and listen to that question and the answer.
0: okay um, and, and if we think about the r1 and the R2, one of the very pleasant surprises I think you you found as costs have inflated to some degree is that you had some um, uh, obvious upward price price adjustments. It's not something we' usually hear in, in the auto industry, although actually we're hearing more more of it these days uh, than we have it in the past. Um, you know what is your opportunity to potentially take more price? On the R1, I mean, is it as orders are? I mean, functionally, like as you as you slip these in, you obviously don't want to raise price on people in in, in the backlog. But I mean, when is what is your opportunity to take price over time in in response to just market dynamics um, or potentially higher input costs?
4: We see that the bigger opportunity is being um, there to really stretch and extend the top end of the portfolio. Uh, whether that's the addition of of new you know technology in the vehicle, um, so how we think about taking what's already a, a phenomenal product today and making that even better, right? quicker, you know, longer ranges over the long term, uh, or incremental you know trim packages as well that help us you know extend up ASP as as well. and and we've talked a, a bit about in the past the fact that within our pre-order base of configured orders, we've seen a strong orientation towards, are more premium offerings as as well. So that gives us confidence uh, to continue to invest in the product development roadmap uh, for the R1 product in particular. And the opportunities that we have is is to leverage many of those technologies, as we think about um, the cross-platform investments that will become the foundation for R2 as as well. Um, So we're we're getting a a strong return on, on those investments as well.
0: Got it, okay. Um, and then when you when you think about um, the the R2, um, I mean it's going to come in at a, at a sort of a more semi mass market price point. But we're only talking about 200,000 units of capacity, so theoretically that could be a, a, a somewhat of a, a premium product. Um, I mean you're talking about the R2 is opening up the market for you. So I understand that like over time uh, it might go down in, in price point. But I mean when it's first launched, I mean there's going to be tremendous demand for the product. If it's anything like the R, the R, the R1. Even just a you know slightly scaled down version. I mean, what I mean, how are you thinking about pricing on that to, um, to kick off? Or where you where you maybe not even if you give us a dollar value, that'd be great. But how you would position that? How you're going to position that in the market?
4: Sure. So one of the important pieces is really looking at the portfolio overlaps and pricing. And so as you think about the R1, you know, base price today of an R1T starts at seventy three thousand uh, dollars. We think about right. How does the most premium you know, R2 uh, stretch up towards, you know, that level, but ensuring that we're leaving the R1 platform as our true flagship platform in the market that will maintain, you know, strong uh, overall AFPs for us. And so that's largely, you know, how we think about it. I I would say one of the important pieces that we've continued to look out and evaluate, especially given some of the um, broader changes in in price over the course of the last um, year or so within the EV space, is to always ensure that we were building the unit economic model of R2 with a more normalized pricing environment in mind for us. And so uh, while you know you could have looked back at the market at sort of the average you know AFp you know in the high 60s and you know even you know beyond for for some uh, comparable vehicles, we were making sure that we were building a model and, and infrastructure and you know cost structure uh, that could accommodate you know much lower, uh, price points as, as well as we think about the broader spans. Of
1: that. I, I understand why he's asking these questions because again, he's a financial person, but man, would I like to, <laughs> to hear. Uh, how are we going to make these products more affordable? Not, Hey, it seems like you have a popular product. How are we going to jack up the prices and make as much money as we can while we can, which I get it. It's their job or I don't like it. All right. I skipped over some questions because they were more, uh, pricing questions. This next one has to do with supply chain and semiconductor issues, like not being able to get them.
0: Okay. And when you think about the, um, back to this, the the supply side of things really, really quickly, um, the semiconductor issue, um, you're solving that someone with Enduro, you're solving that with some, uh, with going to sort of dual, dual motors, both the quad, quad motor. Um, you're finding these ways internally to, to, to deal with this and, 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 Second supply and and maybe using less semis and or using less you know motor um you know, to deal with it. Um, how much externally has the issue been solved with some some of your suppliers? I mean, are you finding it still a real a real challenge? And you're just like, okay, we have to find a second source. We have to find a way to to work around this because we're just not getting the answers or the or the the supply that we need from from our existing partners.
4: I would say we, we've seen constraints within the broader you know silicon carbide supply chain as a whole. And so one of the advantages that we've had from an engineering capability and development vantage point is the fact that we you know, design our inverter in-house. Uh, that inverter can utilize both silicon carbide. It can also use you know, silicon I IGBTs as well. And so uh, because of that, it provides more flexibility. And then through uh, the drive unit efficiency uh, that our, our team has been able to, to gain as well, uh, we've been able to... In certain cases, expand the range of our vehicles while transitioning from silicon carbide to silicon. And so I think it comes back to the advantages of the level of vertical integration that we have as a business. And so the nimbleness in which we can respond and adapt and innovate around supply constraints that exist.
1: I've mentioned this before, but I love hearing about how they solve problems when it comes to manufacturing in terms of, you know, working around. Supply chain issues or if they come run up against a problem with manufacturing, how they solve that. I love hearing that stuff. And for them to have an inverter that could take advantage of silicon carbide or silicon IGBTs, which I'll be honest, I don't know what that is. And I'm not going to look it up because I'm on a timeline. Um, Just the fact that they could switch back and forth. I think that is fantastic. That is so interesting to me. Um, Our next question has to do with gross margins and pricing again, but she does talk a little bit about how initially when Rivian was just starting up, they negotiated prices and they didn't get the best prices because when you're a startup, these uh, companies aren't going to give you their best prices. You're lucky to even have them as suppliers. Now that Rivian is growing, they, they, they can renegotiate their with their suppliers a little bit and get the better prices. So let's go ahead and listen to that.
0: One of the big things is getting the growth margin break even, right? Um, I think you're talking about that and getting actually into positive territory in, in, into 2024. Um, is that surely a question of of, of scale uh, and hitting a certain level of, of production that's significantly above 50,000 units? Um, I mean, what, I mean, how do you, I mean, how do you kind of envision getting getting there?
4: Sure, is as, as we think about the gross profit bridge from Q4 2022 uh to Q4 of of 2024 as as you mentioned we expect to see a true step change uh, not just to to break even but to to positive uh, territory in in that time frame and about 2 thirds of that overall bridge is driven by fixed cost leverage that's derived from you know put having greater levels of of volume running through our our plant in normal illinois the other um, final third of of that walk is split, you know, 50% uh, based off of of how we're we're effectively reducing our material costs. And so the material cost reductions are, you know, driven by uh, design related changes. Uh, so whether that's the introduction of our uh, in house drive units, whether that's introduction of uh, LFP battery packs into the mix, uh, whether it's our, our next generation, you know, network architecture. Um, You know, our next generation battery packs, there's a lot of core technologies that will be introduced over the course of 23 and 24 uh, that materially reduce our material costs. And then the other, you know, component of the material cost reduction is driven by commercial uh, negotiations and commercial cost downs as as well. And many of our um, supplier agreements were set back in 2018, 2019, uh, before we were a pre-production, you know, business and company. So there's an embedded right, risk that's, that's baked into many of those contracts. Uh, so now we have the opportunity as we're uh, bidding out, you know, some of these new technologies with the supply base, as we think about the carrot of R2 as well in the longer term, uh, that allows us to reset uh, pricing with many of those supply partners as well. And then the final piece is is AFP, and that AFP uh, is driven both by the shift from our you know, early pre-order customers, so those pre-March 1st uh, pre-order business, uh, which will largely uh, be exhausted throughout the course of 2023. And then uh, the other elements are really this next shift as we think about uh, the next generation of of technologies going into the the vehicles themselves, Uh, so the ability to to gain, you know, pricing power with new performance, new capabilities, new trim levels that allow us to a meaningfully increase ASP as well over that time frame.
1: It sounds like next year Rivian will be break even in terms of their financials, or maybe even a little ahead. Uh, I think I read an article I don't have it in front of me here that said that Rivian should be profitable in 2024. But in either case, the the way that they're going to do that, according to Claire McDonough, is they're going to have to reduce costs and they're going to have to change the way that they design things to reduce manufacturing, which a good example, that is the Enduro motor. And then they need to improve manufacturing around those design changes. And we talked about renegotiating with suppliers. And then they have to wait for that ASP, which is, they say this a lot, it's average sales price. They have to wait for that to catch up with current pricing. Because there are still reservation holders who reserved and locked in a price you know, that was you know, a year or two years ago. So they need those people to take delivery of their, of their vehicles so that Rivian has that opportunity to uh, sell more vehicles at that higher cost. Anyway, that's what I got out of it. If you got something different out of it, email me, Bode, B-O-D-I-E, at 918digital.com. Our next question is, how is Rivian retaining reservation holders? Because there's a long wait time. To get a truck how is wh- what is Rivian doing to keep people on that reservation list and not floating off to you know some other car company
0: when you think about on, on on the wait time because that is you know, it's, it's very important I understand why you're, why you're doing that um I mean how are you holding on to folks as as they continue to wait I mean 2,000 units this year you're saying you're I mean your your backlog. I'm applying it, but you're saying you're, you're going to sell through your backlog at least through 2023, so it might be might be larger than that. Well, you know, we'll we'll, we'll see. Um, not trying to look for exact number, but how do you hold on to those folks and really continue to market to them and have them not slip out into buying, you know, a competitive
4: product? Sure. So to clarify, the the pre order backlog through 23 is the pre March first uh, backlog from okay. last year. So, right. so there's the backlog that well into uh, yep. to 24. Um, but it's a, it's a key consideration for us. So one of the key initiatives that we've had has been around our, our drive, test drive program. So getting and ins- making sure that every one of our pre-order customers had the opportunity to experience the Rivian, you know, drive a Rivian as well. Uh, one of the other core uh, benefits that we've, we have is, is the fact that, um, before the IRA bill was put into place, uh, we allowed our customers to transition from, um, you know, a, uh, their current, you know, pre-order of $1,000 uh, that was fully refundable to commit $100 of that purchase. That's the, would be a committed purchase, and so many of of the pre-order customers before, you know, that August time frame are also able to be grandfathered into the $7,500 uh, tax credit as well. And so that's another, I, I would say, sticking point as we think about the value that um, is embedded within our pre-order base as well.
1: Honestly, I think they've held on to people for so long because A, there's not really a a great alternative out there for folks unless you're looking at the F 150 Lightning, which is a really good alternative, but it's a different market than what Rivian's trying to serve. I don't think that, I don't think people care about the test drives, honestly. Like, if you really want a truck, you can go out and buy an F 150 Lightning from a dealer. For around the same price as the Rivian, but if you really want what Rivian has to offer, you're you're going to wait for that that truck. So I don't think that's that big of a deal, but I do think that it's commendable that Rivian has uh, people waiting for as long as they have uh, for uh, for basically a first time you know first shot truck like this is their first time uh, building a, a truck and it's gotten such good reviews and such good word of mouth that people really want that truck. I think that's great for Rivian. All right, next up. Uh, the next question is kind of long and convoluted, or at least I thought it was. I The thing that I want to get out of this and that I want you to get out of it is what discussions are like, or if, if they even exist, with FedEx and UPS with the delivery van that Rivian's offering.
0: Yeah, right. You can see that on, on YouTube and, and and really appreciate what it is. It's it's pretty awesome stuff. Um, and it's kind of simple, but kind of amazing, right? Like as a, as a as a consumer, you must love. I mean, people must love that. Right. Um, there there's been some news reports. Um, I think in the Wall Street Journal and other places that the exclusivity with with um with Amazon might be something it's you're you're kind of negotiating negotiating out of. Can you just remind us, you know, what the exclusivity is? As my understanding it was really for last mile delivery full stop specific, specifically so negotiating out of that might not be that mean not be that necessary for you to to really grow with other other customers but I would imagine if you're negotiating out of that um or changing that right negotiating out of it I mean I'm just curious what you what your' what the discussions are um I gotta imagine somebody like fedEx or ups is is waiting in the in, in the wing because last mile delivery really they're kind of the other the two, you know, folks out there that are behemoths. Um, I don't know if you can comment on, on, you know, if there's other customers waiting in the wings. But uh, what's going on with the exclusivity? How it's structured, and 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 are there talks going on?
4: Sure. So, uh, first off, we'll start with the Amazon, you know, relationship itself, which you know remains incredibly strong. Um, as as you probably have have seen, there's been you know an Amazon blog post that they put out recently talking about the you know over three thousand vehicles. That are in the field and the 75 million million uh, packages that they've you know, been able to deploy uh, with those vehicles as well. And so I, I would say as we sit here today, there's a lot of excitement around um, you know the carbon impacts that uh, this you know this deployment has had across the board um, as we think about you know Amazon's uh, climate pledge in, in particular and as we think about right with IRA and the commercial benefits, the long tail of commercial customers that are also equally excited about um, the, the broader, you know, commercial EV opportunities as well. One of the advantages of, of the Amazon, you know, program that we have is the opportunity to work through what's been, you know, the largest deployment of, you know, electric vehicles into a, a fleet uh, over that time frame as, as well in a commercial capacity. And so that the core learnings that we've gone through with them, not just from the vehicle, but how are we deploying the vehicles, how are we utilizing um, our telematics-based you know, software solutions uh, to help improve you know, uptime in the vehicles and reduce total cost of ownership uh, for Amazon are, are critically important as we think about the long-term commercial opportunities that sits out there as well for ourselves. And the exclusivity agreement um, with Last Mile is through 2026, so it is a time-based, you know, agreement that we have with them. Uh, We do have the opportunity to uh, think about the broader long tail of of commercial customers uh, beyond that Last Mile cohort as well. And there's certainly lots of, you know, cargo or other types of use cases uh, that could be utilized with, you know, the sort of vehicles um, that we have in, in our disposal and then as, as we think about the um, opportunity to, to really expand the customer bases as well, uh, the Amazon agreement is, you know, a cost plus base agreement. Uh, so the incremental volume opportunity, you know, it is also a benefit to Amazon over the longer term as we, you know, leverage all of the, the fixed costs and labor of running that line.
0: Got it. So there's no, it sounds like there's no change to so what's going on right now.
1: No change. I know that wasn't the most exciting answer, but I thought it was really interesting. All right. Our final question is going to be about IRA credits. So let's just go ahead and dive into it. Got it. Okay. Uh, you mentioned the IRA,
0: um, commercial vehicle side, uh, you know, largely under- understandable. Um, but on the, R- the R1 and the R- R2 side, it could be um, pretty pretty impactful. I know there's kind of the, this potentially this gap here. I and mean, how, how does the R1 line up right now with the new rules that we've or sort of interpretation of the rules or the law that we, we just got last week. And um, how are you setting up the R2 to be theoretically fully compliant? So you're, you're getting the full 7,500 and maybe even dipping into the, the 35 bucks per kilowatt hour in some way um, yeah. as well.
4: So for, uh, for R1, because of the price point of the vehicles themselves, Tough. it's hard for it to qualify. There's uh, leasing opportunities that are available for R1 that become attractive or also, you know, commercial use cases. So if you were a general contractor and you're purchasing an R1T, you know, for for your vehicle, um, you can take advantage of some of those, you know, commercial credits as as well. So that's really the opportunity set as, as we think about R1s. And then it's it's more so to to focus on uh, how we're building out the supply chain uh for battery cells for R2, uh, so that we'll have. Uh, battery compliant vehicles. Uh, given at that price point, it becomes a much more meaningful uh, incentive. As as you think about, um, you know, the, the opportunities that available to R two as well. Uh, but beyond uh, the the credits um, that we'll receive as as well, we we do get right because we're building our battery modules and battery packs in house. Uh, so we do have the you know ten dollars per kilowatt hour. Uh, credits that, that hit uh, this year, which is a, a benefit for us. And then one of the other advantages we have with with IRAs associated with all of the uh, incentives for uh, charging, the charging networks that we're building out as well. We build our uh, DC fast chargers in-house at our plant in normal Illinois. And so one of the uh, points of, of the bills that have been put in place around charging infrastructure is that uh, needs to be you know made in America. And there are actually very few players that have um, manufacturing capabilities in the u s right now that can tap into you know the billions of dollars of of available funding there.
0: And, and can you remind us what how that how that would work for for the the chargers?
4: So there' mo- there's multiple different um incentive packages available for you know charging based infrastructure. And so it can be upwards of you know 80% of the cost uh, to put that charger in, in place uh, through government credit.
1: So it sounds like Rivion's still going to be able to take advantage of the Inflation Reduction Act credits. I thought I read an article, and we'll may talk about it here in a second after I look through all of my articles. But I thought I read an article that they actually did end up qualifying for uh, the tax credit. But I'll have to double check on that. So... We're actually going to talk about some Rivian news at the very end of this episode. Unfortunately, (laughs) I haven't read any of the articles yet. That's why I think I saw something about this, but I wasn't sure. But it sounds like all of the IRA credits that Rivian qualifies for benefits Rivian and not so much uh, customers unless you own and operate a fleet or you're um, you're, you're, you're a contractor or something like that. All right. That is it for me this episode. If you want to learn more about what it takes to run an EV startup, go listen to the rest of Marquez Brownlee's interview. It is so good. Uh, If you listen to it and you have things you want to discuss, email me bodie, B-O-D-I-E at 918digital.com. And yeah, that's it for me, everybody. Hope you all have a wonderful day and I will talk to you on Friday.